Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 21 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. We have survived until now as a species by our ability to make decisions based on judgments, those that we are aware of and those that we are not. Those of us in occupations that require quick decisions and continuous processing to update them are often aware of what is called the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. The speed at which this can happen in our subconscious is measured in milliseconds. These types of thoughts are referred to commonly as snap judgments, first impressions, and gut feelings. Internally critiquing and changing the decisions that come from these takes an immense amount of self-awareness and examination, and we don't always desire to put in the energy to do either for every person that we meet. It could be argued that in careers where there may not be time to get to know your coworkers before we are asked to do something that's extremely dangerous, all we have to go on are these first impressions, the moments between that and the event, and what judgments we have heard that other people have already made. It's very difficult to reserve judgment given that it is in our nature not to. We are not comfortable with everything being uncertain. So what to do? Start with a fair and healthy critique of ourselves. This is the look in the mirror adage. Not all the solutions and reasons are found there, but it's a beginning. Be willing to update your judgment based on new information. This is the key component of the loop. If we do this for ourselves and with others, we have a much better chance of making better decisions. My guest this week writes eloquently and prolifically with his project, The Fire Inside. He enjoys pausing to take a step back, a deeper dive, and reflecting on the inner workings and nuances of us as people and as firefighters. I highly recommend you follow his work, and I know you'll enjoy our conversation. Here's my talk with Mark alone. All right, man. Well, let's get into it. Tell me where you grew up and a little bit about your family. So I grew up outside of Troy, New York, uh, which is across the river from Albany, the capital. Many people don't realize it's the capital. I think New York City is. Pretty typical family life. Live with mom and dad. Dad was in the Army, but he had a cool gig where he was kind of contracted to the National Guard, but still active duty, so we didn't have to do the whole, you know, military brat move around thing. Um, and then my mom, she was a nurse. She started as an L&D nurse, kind of worked at swing shift, you know, three at midnight for a while. Um, and then as she kind of grew in her position, she ended up heading up some things with primary care and ended up being a manager. And now she's, you know, still with that health system, doing some IT stuff for their billing software. I had an older sister. He's married. She lives up in Vermont now. Pretty small family, sports and stuff growing up. Good childhood. Never really went without anything. Not as good as some, but better than most, I guess is how I would describe it. Did you go to public school there? I did go to public school. And it's funny you bring it up. I was thinking about that before we talked. How many people go to homeschool now? You got to kind of specify. Kind of a smaller town. So K through eight was my first school, which is kind of unique for some people. And then we had a choice of high schools. So I went to the neighboring city of Troy for high school. Always did kind of well in school. Didn't really have to try so much, I guess. I was kind of blessed that way. I was kind of book smart. Kind of did my thing, went to school, played some sports, found the fire service there towards my junior year. And baseball, was it for you for a while there? Yeah, growing up, you know, I wanted to be a New York Yankee more than anything and played ball till about, I think, 11 or 12. I was a catcher, pretty decent catcher. The problem was I couldn't hit. And then I would come to find out later when I went into the military, that I have no depth perception. So kind of difficult to see the ball coming to hit it. That was kind of the end of my baseball career. So as I got into junior high, I transitioned over to soccer. And I did pretty well with that. Ended up being captain of most of the teams. Got really involved in just kind of the runnings of it, not really coaching so much until later in life. Tried lacrosse there in high school, but we were kind of small with lacrosse. We only had one team. Not a big dude, Scott. Probably 120 pounds. Five foot nothing there as a freshman going against these seniors who've been playing lacrosse their whole life. So that didn't really work out too well. 
my dad was big on if you start a season, you're going to finish it. And that was kind of the one where he was kind of like, for safety, I think we're going to let you maybe bow out gracefully of this one, which is a shame. I love lacrosse. It's such a cool sport. Similar to hockey like that. I wish I could just skate better. I probably would have played hockey, but me and ice skates, you know, we don't really get along that well either. So, <laughs> And then you went on to community college? I did. We had a paramedic program locally, kind of in the same village as me, which was cool. And to get on career in that part of the country, you pretty much had to be a paramedic. But the problem I had with it was that it was in my fire district that I volunteered on. So I kind of spent more time away from school and, you know, college a little different than high school. You had to try a little harder, I guess. I'd just never been forced to apply myself. So first time in my life, I found school challenging and I was actually on my way to flunking out, believe it or not. That was kind of my wake up call, I think. I'd say I was pretty, I guess, shelter. You know, my parents took care of me. I always had a job growing up. I always worked, but if I needed something, they gave it to me. But that was kind of my wake-up call. I'd never had to tell them I failed at anything before. So here I am faced with, hey, what am I going to do? You know, how do you tell your parents that are paying for your college? And you're flunking not because you're not smart enough, because you're not applying yourself and you're not attending. I kind of had a friend at the time who was going into the Air Force, and I had driven him uh, to one of the Air Force bases to kind of do some in-doc stuff. And he kind of said, hey, you know, go talk to my recruiter. And, you know, my dad was in the Army. So I was like, well, I know how I'll get out of this. I'll go join the military. You know, it'll be that simple. I'm off to basic training, and I get there trying to figure out how did I get here? You know, what am I doing? That was the first time in my life that I didn't really have any control over anything. Very foreign concept. I'm very naive entry into the military, and that kind of was the wake-up call. And I think that's kind of where I started to gain a little maturity. I mean, I don't know. I'm probably not as mature as I should be at this age either, but that was kind of the, hey, you're not a kid anymore. You're going to have to grow up. You're going to have to do something and, and really started learning that responsibility aspect of things. I think that's a bit of a personality type for people that get into our work. There has to be some small part of us that never really grows up. Yeah, to me, that's kind of the coping side. But you got to be able to be serious when it's time to be serious. But if you can't be a kid sometimes and, and have a good time, and you, you just get too tied up in the stress of things. Yeah. What'd you do with the U.S. Air Force? So oddly enough, I was an intelligence analyst. I kind of picked the Air Force too, A, because I had a, a friend going in, but B, they had an awesome fire program. I ended up scoring very well on the entry test and fell into the trap of the recruiter of, oh, you know, you scored too well for that entry level position as a firefighter. So we're going to put you in something really cool. And I'm like, okay. Originally, I was supposed to go as a loadmaster on a C-130, which is you know, the guy that does all the cargo and all the calculations and stuff, and that I didn't take it fast enough, so it had filled up, so I had to pick something else. And, you know, we'll put you in intelligence, and, you know, okay, I didn't really know what that meant. I thought it was going to be James Bond, and it was pretty different than that. And then the big irony with that is, you know, where my training was for my technical school, the only other thing they did on that base was firefighting. So I had to watch firefighters train every day as I went to my windowless building to sit on my computer and do secret squirrel stuff which is not a, as glamorous as advertised by any means. You said when you were in college that it was near your fire district. You were volunteering, but what was your first exposure to the service? Was it the Air Force? No, it was actually before that. I volunteered for my hometown, and I don't really know. I didn't really have an exposure, to be honest with you. I had neighbors that were pretty heavily involved with it, but you know they were a lot older than me. I just always had a thing for the fire service. It was just the trucks, the old school, small town. You kind of had the air raid siren, you know, the minuters to tell you they were getting a call. And uh, we grew up about a block from the firehouse. So anytime that siren would go off, I'd go to the window and look, see the fire trucks. Or when I got old enough to ride my bike down there, you know, I'd pedal down there and watch them go out. Some days I'd try to keep up with them. I didn't really have a fire growing up or that car wreck. I thought it was cool when they came to school and stuff. But a lot of people, you know, they had that moment. I, I never really had it. I just kind of was always into it. 
So I turned 17 and it just kind of hit me like, hey, maybe you're old enough to go do that now. I grew up in a town, two different villages. And, you know, one, you could be 16 and start as a junior firefighter. And then the one closest to me would be 18. So I actually went across town to start with. And that's where I got, you know, my basic firefighter certifications. I was there about a year when I turned 18. It just, it made a lot more sense to go closer to the house because I wasn't making a truck. It's that old volunteer model where you're responding to the station to get the rigs. So driving across town, you're lucky to catch third due where I'm getting first due down the road from me. And then that just kind of went from there. And I guess the Air Force was kind of a break. It was supposed to be a continuation. You know, I thought I'd be a firefighter there too. It just didn't kind of work out that way. And so what was your rookie time there as a volunteer like? I thought it was pretty cool. It's tough for me. I'm a first-generation firefighter, so I always kind of had that outsider thing. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So I, I kind of figured out a lot of things by trial and error and just kind of observant thing. But, I, I mean, I was treated well. I mean, I think I was picked on a little bit here and there, you know, just like everybody else is. But it was nothing, you know, bullying or malicious or anything like that. Um, I think the hardest thing for me was that when I made the transition from one department to the other, I think there was a little animosity there, you know, because I'd started one place and left. And, I, you know, they took it personal. I get why. But I had my reasons. But as far as the treatment goes, they wanted to share the job with you. They wanted to show you how to do things. They answered questions. Being a younger guy available during the day, I got a lot of experience in roles I probably shouldn't have had that soon. But, you know, I mean, your daytime crew is the college kids and the retired guys. It's an interesting dynamic, but, but we made it work and it was neat. And I learned a lot of pride and enthusiasm and, and really being just dedicated to the department and, and caring about things. And I guess brotherhood and tradition and, you know, all the generic things, but you just kind of wanted to be there. And it's kind of the same as it is these days. You know, there was some people that showed up more than others, but generally the people who wanted to be there were there and they made your time worth it. You know, you never felt like you were showing up, wasting your time by any stretch of the imagination. You were stationed in Georgia with the Air Force? That's where I ended up. I was in Texas for basic training in school. I did my first permanent party tour. I went to Germany for two years. Uh, my last transfer was here to Georgia. I was up for re-enlistment. I was actually about to re-enlist, and I had been uh, volunteering with a department down here in the county that I live in. They were hiring about the same time, so I got offered a job, and I think there was like a three-month difference there between when I started and when I was supposed to get out of the military, and we kind of made our schedules work together, and I transitioned out and off to my uh, career side of the fire service. And so what was rookie time there like? A little different here. Like I said, I've volunteered here for about a year, and the department changed a lot since then. You know, at the time, it was more combination than career. I mean, all the stations were staffed, but they were growing very, very rapidly. And that volunteer program was kind of your rookie thing. I ended up going back. Some of my stuff transferred from New York, and some didn't. So I've kind of made the decision to go back and just take the fire one over again. I had a four-year gap. I only had about two and a half, three years on before the military, so it's not like I had some wealth of experience where I could say, oh, you know, I know how to do it all. They sent me back. I went to the State Fire Academy, and then later I went through a technical school to get my pro board cert. But there wasn't really a rookie kind of time, I guess. Your volunteer time was kind of like a extended job interview, I guess, and that's kind of where you learn the ropes and the stations and the tactics. As a volunteer, you were there, you pulled duty shifts, and you would ride with the paid crews. It was two-man crews at the time for every station. And then if you had some volunteers come in, they would supplement that crew, and it would grow out to three or four or five, whatever you could get on the trucks. But kind of the same, the typical good kind of hazing, giving you a hard time. But a, a very different culture, I think, than what I experienced in the Northeast. That was kind of a hard transition for me. The way things were done were not the same. I mean, not to say they're right or wrong. It just, it was very different for me. And then again, you kind of got the outsider thing kind of tenfold where not only am I not in this lineage with the family, but I'm also a guy from the North living in Georgia, which is still to this day, there's stuff there where the South and North are very different. 
kind of self-inflicted a lot too. I think I kind of went in with a thinking I was more experienced than I was and knew more than I was and probably taught more than uh, observed, which I shouldn't have. But, you know, it is what it was. I, I obviously did something right. You know, they offered me a job later. And then when I got hired, I just kind of went to a station as the second guy. It was a single man station. I was hired to be the second person at the station. Had a pretty cool partner named Richard. He kind of showed me the ropes. We were a slow station. We had a lot of time to fill, just a lot of trial and error stuff. There was no formal process at the time. You just kind of showed up and whoever you worked with, the, the senior person or the officer, whoever it was at the time, they kind of taught you what they thought you should know. And you went on calls and you got experience and you figured it out. Did you have a hard time transitioning from a military mindset to a paramilitary mindset? Was that part of it? Were you expecting more discipline? Um, I think so. And, you know, that's not even a regional thing. I just think the fire service as a whole these days, I think it's kind of gotten away from that. And I thought it would be a little more regimented. I think I was used to, you know, the, the processes of the military, the getting cleared to do this, getting cleared to do that. And it just it wasn't part of the culture at the time. It's evolved to that now in a lot of ways. But I guess, like you said, I just thought it would be a lot more formal like the military than it ended up being. I don't really know that it was a hard transition. It was just kind of one of those things where one day you had to say, hey, this is not going to be what you thought it is. And rather than dwell on it, I kind of tried to keep that military mindset and then tried to pass that on to the people I was around and try to make it part of the culture, I guess, rather than to just say, oh, you know, screw it. We're not going to do it that way. You got involved in training and education pretty early? Yeah, it's funny how that works. I think I was about my fifth year or so. I had gone to a couple of classes, you know, just the basic stuff you need to get like your fire one and your fire two finished up, but I'd never really been exposed to outside training. So in about that five or six year period, uh, the department made a huge transition. You know, we were originally a private fire department, which is kind of unheard of these days, but basically it was its own entity and it was contracted by the county to provide fire service to the unincorporated areas. About my fifth or sixth year, we made a transition to where we became part of the county government. And what that meant was a lot of restructuring and changes. And part of that was I ended up being on float staff. So I went from being a acting officer to they had somewhere for you to cover for, you know, sick or vacation or something. You went out to a station. And if not, you were just an additional personnel, you know, at whatever station you were assigned to. And that was pretty tough on me, I think. But I, at the same time, I realized that I probably wasn't as knowledgeable and experienced as I thought I was. And, you know, being at slower stations and then going to a busier company, you kind of got exposed in a lot of ways. And it was pretty rough on me, that transition. I think I beat myself up a lot about it, but I was able to find some mentors and confide in them. And they kind of directed me to go to some conferences and some leadership type stuff. And that, that was cool. It was a big wake up call for me. And Without, you know, those recommendations and, and people leading me down that path. I don't know that I'd be where I am today by any means, but that kind of clicked for me. I think the, the first conference I ever went to was the High Rise Operations Conference in Pensacola with Chief Isaacson. And man, I just, I had never seen anything like it, Scott. You know, it's just all these guys who are just foaming out of the mouth to do fire stuff. I'm like, man, this is great. You know, I, I want to be a part of this. You found your people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just find the people that you click with. And it's not to say you don't have them in your department, but it's just a different breed that does these conferences and these outside training things. And I didn't know half the stuff. I probably should have known me in there. But that was my wake-up call, I guess. And so ever since then, there's a lot of people that are far more into training than I am, far more talented. But I try to get to outside training. I try to go to conferences. I try to associate with people like that. And uh, I'm glad I found it at that stage in my career because I probably had some bad habits at that point, but I wasn't far enough down the road where I couldn't turn it around. Ever since then, that's kind of been, you know, what I'm into. You know, I like to train. I like to go 
hang out. I like to talk fire and I attribute all that just to those early days of being exposed to the conferences and the outside training that quite honestly, I didn't even know existed, you know, when I started. Yeah. Speaking of bad habits, you just mentioned that, and it's probably one that's pretty common throughout the service, but being overly hard on yourself, remembering what went wrong more than what went right. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, I think there's a happy balance there. And I don't think you can improve if you're not willing to kind of put yourself under that microscope and really be very objective about what you're doing. And it's not to say that you need to pick yourself apart, but I just think if you can't self-examine, you're not going to help yourself. All the people in the world can tell you you're doing this wrong, doing that wrong. And I can tell you from experience that people had told me that for years, just not even skills-wise, but just getting down to how you deal with people, how you have a dialogue how you try to address things. If you're not willing to be hard on yourself, you're just not going to improve. But then the flip side of that is I think you can get in this kind of dangerous mental game where you get so used to putting yourself down. You get so used to being hard on yourself, chasing that perfection, chasing that improvement that at some point you kind of don't think that you can do it anymore. And to me, it's like a teeter-totter. And I think if you talk to people that are really into the fire service, you'll find that a lot of them battle that just kind of back and forth, back and forth. You know, one day you're on top and you, you feel great about it. And then that one thing happens and it just tears you back down to nothing and you got to build back up again. And then you start kind of getting that confidence. And then that confidence probably transitions to arrogance at some point. And then, you know, life slaps you in the face again and you kind of start over. But if you're not willing to do that, you miss those moments of failure. and You just kind of brush them off as it's everybody else's fault. And I can tell you somebody that blamed others for my shortcomings for a very long time, that is not the case. But, you know, I think that's where people get frustrated too, is when you can't be humble enough and exercise that humility to be self, you know, aware, to be introspective on yourself, then you know, all the advice in the world is not going to help you at all. Yeah, that all resonates pretty deeply with me as well. And I'm sure it does with a lot of people. And it's probably something we should talk more about because it's nice to know it's not only going on in your own head. Yeah, and and I, and I can tell you the other side of that too, Scott, is that it's funny. I listen to, you know, like a lot of leadership stuff, a lot of training stuff, you know, podcasts, or read books, read articles. And, and one of the big things I hear people talk about is that positive self-talk where you kind of motivate yourself and you support yourself. And what I find interesting about that is I think that works for a lot of people, and I think there's a time and a place for it. But I know me personally, whether we're talking about fire skills or education or home life or fitness, I don't care what the topic is, is that I am more likely to respond in a constructive manner if you tell me I can't. I don't know what it is about my motivation, about my mindset, but for instance, if I'm working out and I need to run another half mile and I don't feel like doing it, if I say, hey, you know, Mark, you can do it, you can do it, I'm just going to kind of go through the motions and I might be like, oh, well, don't worry about it. But if in my mind, I tell myself I can't do it, then I got to prove myself wrong. And I don't know if that's healthy or not, but, you know, I think to sit there and tell everybody that positive self-talk is the only way to get motivated, I don't think is right. But I think a lot of people respond like that. They need to be told they can't do something to say, okay, I got you now. Watch me do it anyway. And it's not wrong to do it that way by any means, but different people are motivated by different things. Yeah, I think the teeter-totter analogy you used in trying to balance between the two worlds is probably the, the healthiest. I definitely fall into the category of being too hard on myself, but I need to to get through things, but I had to come to realize how to be a bit more positive as well and realize that that wasn't going to be leading to arrogance or complacency. Yeah, and I've worked on that a lot. 
I've been accused more times than not of being a negative person. And, and I understand that point of view. I can see the way I view things, the way I look at things, the way I articulate why people would say that. But I think I'm realistic, you know, and there's good and bad with everything. And you can take that positivity thing to just as dangerous of a level as you can take the negativity, because when you become overly positive about things that are not positive, when that's the only viewpoint you're willing to see, when you want to take your crew and something bad's going on and you just kind of want to ignore it to keep everybody's positivity up, I think that's detrimental just like being negative all the time. I think we need to, like you said, be realistic and find that balance. If something sucks, it sucks. And sometimes we can do something about it and sometimes we can't. But pretending that it's not bad is not going to make the situation any better. So you really got to train your mind to say, okay, hey, on this hand, we have A, B, and C that probably aren't as great as they should be. And and we should find some solutions for those things, given the opportunity. But hey, on this other hand, we've still got D, E, and F that are going pretty good and, and better than most. So let's be thankful we have those things going on, but not use them as an excuse to ignore the other things that we still need to work on. We're also people that fix things and try and fix situations. So maybe with that saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We kind of see the things that are set and good. We just don't pay attention to them because they don't need fixing. We look at the broken things. I agree. And I think something I'm starting to learn uh, as I get a little bit older and, and hopefully a little more mature is that not everything needs to be fixed. And this is especially true with people is that a lot of times people just want to get it off their chest. And like you said, we're fixers in the fire service. That's what we do. We are used to being called upon to, hey, this is the problem. We need a solution. And I think what happens with our own people and even our families a lot of time is that we try to take that fixer thing and we take everything to heart that this is bothering me. Okay, I'm going to fix it for you. But, but I don't think everybody wants that every time. Sometimes people just want you to know that they're hurt or they disagree or they're not in a good place or they'd like to see something different. But that doesn't mean we have to drop everything right now and go fix it for them. Sometimes just being able to get those ideas and those opinions out and open is the fix they need it. They just don't want to hold it inside anymore. And if we just let people express themselves that way, whether it's through, hey, can we go try this tactic out in the parking lot? Or, hey, would you read this for me? Or, hey, can we just sit at the table and let me just unload right now and understand that, you know, I don't need you to go to the fire chief tomorrow and fix all my problems. I just need to let it out. If we could get to that point to where we understand that, hey, maybe we're beating ourselves up trying to find solutions where solutions aren't really what we're looking for. Yeah, another angle to that to add would be that people in our lives can also get used to the fact that we'll fix everything and we just tend to take it all on where sometimes we need to hold other people accountable and realize that not everything is our responsibility. And I think we've all been guilty of relying on people to do certain things like that. And then one day they did a gift trade or they're out sick or they're vacation or they're transferred or they retired or quit or whatever it might be. But you turn around looking for that person that's always been the solution. And when they're not there, a lot of people shut down. They don't know what to do without it. We get so used to it a lot of the times that we forget to figure out how to do it ourselves. And that's another rabbit hole you can go down. Tell me about your first fire as a volunteer and ending up on the initial attack line. Uh, talk about naive. So we were in New York, mutual aid fire, next district over, automatic aid during the day. I want to say we were there first. I have a bad habit of all these major milestones you're supposed to remember in your career. Well, nobody told me I was supposed to remember them, so I don't probably remember them like I should. But either way, it was me, another young guy. I think we had a past chief driving us, typical daytime crew, and little kitchen fire. 
I remember being so amped up about it that I don't know what happened between the parking break or when we come out of the house. I just remember we got to the door. One of the chiefs said, hey, it's back there. We crawled around. We took a corner. We ended up getting pinned down kind of near a hallway in a kitchen, and there was fire coming out from behind a refrigerator. I don't even remember if I was on the knob or if I was the backup man, to be honest with you. I just know that we sprayed some water. We came out and celebrated. And what we realized in our celebration was that we had been sitting on something that had wedged in this hallway and we couldn't figure out what it was. We go in there to overhaul and we're kind of looking around. We realize, you know, the family dog is deceased. We never noticed it was a dog. We thought it was a couch or something, which, you know, we're, we're young, we're rookies. We don't have a clue what's going on. We're not paying attention. We don't have that situational awareness. We had gone back out. We start racking hose, making jokes about this and that. And I remember being on the hose bed, looking down the driveway and one of the kids had come up in the driveway asking if they found a dog. And the chief was trying to tell him that the dog hadn't made it. And I felt like a jerk. He didn't hear us, you know, kind of no harm, no foul. But this family just lost their pet. And having a dog now, man, I'd be devastated. It was just a big wake-up call on so many levels as far as you don't have a clue what's going on. You know, you're new. You know, you thought you knew how to be a firefighter, and, and here you are, and, and you don't know. And then just kind of that the other flip side of it that we don't, you know, necessarily consider as firefighters. I think it's cool that we're proud. I think it's cool that we display our pride to the public that we like what we do we enjoy being good at it but at the same time you know we kind of get distant from the fact that a good shift for us is a horrible day for a lot of people and you got to kind of keep that in the back of your mind and I'm the world's worst about my surroundings especially on a call of talking about this or smiling or laughing at the wrong time and it's something I continue to work on but that was kind of my first wake-up call with that was somebody's having a really bad day for you to be enjoying your job and, and be mindful of what you're saying and who's around because you never know when that family member is going to come up behind you or you're going to say the wrong thing in front of somebody kind of stuck with me to this day yeah I think we all experience that a few times along the way we don't want bad things to happen to good people but when they do we want to be there and we don't get a chance to use our skills as often as we'd like so it's a really good feeling when you do it and you do it well. The way me and one of my buddies here have described it to our family members is if you work, you know, as a nurse and say you show up to work for your 12-hour shift, but you don't see a single patient all day and they just tell you, hey, you need to sit there and you can go home when it's time to go home, but you're not going to do any patients today. And that's, oh, well, that, that's a great day. And okay, now do that for you know, a week or a month or two months on end to where you have to show up to work, but they're just going to let you clean the bathroom and kind of hang out, but you're not going to actually get to do your job. And people kind of see it different with that. But like you said, then there's the flip side. Somebody's got to have a bad day. And I would describe it as, hey, I don't want you to have a bad day. I don't want you to have an emergency, but if you're going to have one, it might as well be in my district so I can come use my skills and help you out. Tell me about forgetting your lid. <laughs> Probably one of the dumbest moments I had. It was back in that time when I was on float, I was assigned to a rural station. I was in a pretty bad place just mentally and you know with the department at the time a lot of it self-inflicted but i didn't want to be there at that station I, um it was two guys rural house engine tanker you know he split the crew if you got a fire and you know not known for running a lot of calls so i went in there very complacent with a bad attitude and i just laid down i think around 10 o'clock at night and sure enough we're getting toned for a structure the guy i was working with i was i don't know why in my mind i was convinced he was going to take the tanker and i was going to take the engine and that meant I had to move my gear for some reason off that fire engine to the driver's side. I have, have no idea to this day why I couldn't just leave my gear where it was. But in the process of doing that, I left my lid on the bumper and off we went. This was kind of my wake-up call period where I realized I probably wasn't as smart or experienced as I thought I was. We ended up getting canceled. Luckily, it ended up being nothing to it. And he called me on the radio saying, hey, hold up where you are. I need, I need to see you. And he pulls up in the tanker. Hey, man, found your helmet in the middle of the road. And, man, I felt like a jerk. 
And so I go back to uh, my assigned station the next shift. And, you know, of course, they all know, hey, man, what happened? What happened? And, you know, I just kind of always say, hey, I screwed up. And to top it off, Scott, I, not only had I lost my lid, but I got lost going to the call, too. I didn't know where I was. Uh, I took a wrong turn. And, you know, it was just one of those calls where nothing went right. Yeah, we've had those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, you're going to have one one day, but it was just the perfect storm kind of thing. The only thing that didn't go wrong on that call was that there was something going on and my carelessness impacted it in a negative way. Luckily, it ended up being a false alarm. But I think the lesson there to be learned is that, you know, you got to have humility about things. You know, you got to get over yourself at some point. And uh, that's kind of what I did. I kind of owned it, kind of didn't give people a place to go with it. You know, I, I know they wanted to make fun of me. I deserved it. I would expect people to make fun of me for that. But, you know, it's funny, too, when uh, people want to pick on you for stuff like that. You know, if you sit there and resist and, you know, get upset about it, they're going to pick and pick and pick. But if you're just like, yeah, I'm stupid, they just don't really have anywhere to go with it. So, you know, I made mental notes and, you know, knock on wood to this day, I haven't left my helmet on the bumper anymore. I'm I'm sure I just said that. So now I'll probably end up doing it. But if you do this job long enough, you're going to make mistakes and you just got to kind of own them and, and hope that your mistakes are minor to the bigger picture and, and learn from them and, and go on with your day. One of the images that is sort of in people's minds in the public about firefighting is being in our gear and climbing stairs, especially after 9-11, right? Everyone's sort of seen that image and has it in their mind. And people in our service would, when they think firefighter fitness, they think about that as well. But they don't often think about running in their gear. But you actually had to run quite a ways in your gear. So tell me about that call. Yeah, it's kind of one of the cooler calls, I guess, not for the people, but you ever go on a call and you kind of just try to take yourself out of the equation and, and wonder what it looks like from the outside? I do that. I don't know. From time to time, just kind of riding down the road, going to calls. I look at people's faces in the cars and I just kind of, I know what I'm thinking, but I'm wondering what are they thinking? <laughs> you know, even when you're going to like a false alarm, you know, you're going to something that's probably nonsense and you got to wonder if they're in that car going, oh my God, they're off to, you know, the biggest fire they've ever been to. So I, I always found that just kind of a odd kind of thing. But, right. but anyway, we got called out to a wreck on the interstate. 18-wheeler versus SUV. They believed there was entrapment. The semi was on fire. Of course, the way we had to access the interstate to get to it, we got kind of blocked far out. And I made the call for me and the the guy on the nozzle. We were going to bail out. We were just going to kind of do that uh, that shuffle down the interstate and get up there, and we were going to go to work because the engine couldn't get through. I wasn't thinking to go up there and fight fire. I was thinking, hey, if somebody's entrapped, we got gear. We'll grab our hand tools, and we'll get up there. Hopefully, you know, the operator can navigate this and get up here with some water. But uh I would guess it's maybe an eighth of a mile, if not less. And boy, were we spent. We got up there and we found out that some bystanders had pulled this victim out of this SUV before the fire started. So nobody was entrapped. And thank God, because I don't know where we were going to find energy. Hands on knees. Uh, yeah, we kind of made it look good. We sold it. We kind of took a knee like we were assessing and, you know, waiting for our hose line. But we were catching our breath for sure. At least I know I was. The young guy in the back was probably in better shape than me. Again, one of those calls where you're just kind of looking at yourself and saying, hey, you know, uh, you should probably start working out because if there had been a victim or, God forbid, two or three or four, or who knows, you got up here and adrenaline will only take you so far, especially the older you get. You really got to start investing in your health and wellness. But I wish somebody had a video because I feel like it was kind of like you said, like those 9-11 videos where the guys are in stairwell. I just wonder what it looked like to be sitting in traffic, just semis rolling, and you see these two firemen just hauling ass down the middle of the interstate. I just want to know what it looks like. It's one of the interesting things about our job is being able to be in hundreds to thousands of different homes and buildings over the years. And you notice that there's sometimes some strange things in strange places. And you end up going to a single family dwelling and getting surprised about some stuff in the garage. So what was that all about? So we get toned out to a structure fire in a residential subdivision. 
real good smoke conditioning coming from the garage, split level 70 style home. Uh, so we get in there, you know, we split up the crews. So they go investigate. And what we ended up finding was these people had a bunch of hay bales in their garage in a suburban subdivision. And they had had a charger on a motorcycle that had shorted out and lit this hay on fire. And just one of them things where you're not expecting to find hay, but they owned a horse that they boarded elsewhere. And I guess it was cheaper for them to keep the hay at the house than it was to store it somewhere else. So that's where it was. But you want to talk about overhaul. I mean, my gosh, we had to get every bit of that hay out and into the driveway. It kind of looked like their driveway had been freshly sodded by the time we got done with it. Cause there's just this hay straw everywhere. But man, I mean, it, who would think in a million years that you would go into a residential home in a subdivision and find farm stuff? But you don't know what goes on in these houses, you know what people are doing, whether it's, you know, illegal stuff or, you know, the hoarding stuff or, you know, hey, maybe they're they're storing their hay for their horse in their house. So just kind of keep your head on a swivel and, and be prepared that you may find anything. Yeah, our department's had a few where the garage from the outside is unchanged, but inside they've framed it in as a bedroom. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot of that down here. The old carports, they'll either convert them to a garage or they'll make it into a family room or something. Um, but they just basically put a wall over it and it's done. We had one that was converted into a esthetician office. Again, garage from the outside. It's a workplace on the inside. Yeah. I think that's more common too. You see a lot of that, especially with the cost of these commercial properties now. But you know, I know where I live, it's not uncommon to, especially the ones that are on the like the corner of the old neighborhood with the main roads. You'll see a lot of like old ranch style homes that basically turn into a business office. Sometimes they're marked and sometimes they're not. I can remember going to pre-planned buildings. You know, you're getting this address off the pre-planned list and you're sitting here looking at it like that's a house. You know, you knock on a door and oh, it's the corporate office for you know ABC restaurant. <laughs> okay, whatever. And you uh, got your first taste of sort of being involved with the fire service on a different level through writing an article for fire engineering about a fire you went to. Yeah, that was kind of, uh, I guess, when I really started applying myself more, when I really started trying to get more involved on a training level, I guess. You know, I was surrounded with good people at the time that were doing good things, a lot of people that were teaching. And I had a friend in an apartment that had just kind of wrote an article, and that was kind of the thing, you know, like, hey, you know, you should write an article. I just it never crossed my mind. I helped somebody edit one, so I knew that I could do it. Never really felt like I had a call that was, I'm used to reading Firehouse or Fire Engineering. I'm looking at, you know, something like the Interstate Bridge Collapse up there in, you know, Minneapolis, wherever it was, or, you know, these giant, you know, warehouse fires and stuff up in New Jersey. So, you know, here I am working for a small suburban fire department. I just, you know, I don't really feel like I got that level of expertise, but, uh, you know, somebody said, hey, man, go for it. You know, it's kind of a cool call. So, uh, you know, we had been dispatched on a fire alarm. And about halfway to that, we were diverted to a structure fire. So we were well out ahead of, you know, our normal backup coming out of a double company house. Usually I had a ladder on my tail, but we had a pretty good four or five minute head start on them. So we arrived. I could smell smoke when we got there. Kind of did my walk around, kept smelling the odor, stuck my head in the front door and, and had a pretty moderate smoke condition. Three quarters halfway down, you know, the wall on the first floor. So I went and investigated, got the second floor. Uh, still had some heavier smoke up there, um, ended up in the attic, and what happened was the vent fan in the bathroom had shorted out and had a couple of rafters going. So had a can, put a quick knock on it, and I kind of took it as an opportunity to write an article about what to do with nothing showing because the smoke was on the inside. It wasn't on the outside. My arrival report you know, was a single-family dwelling with nothing showing. So it's an important thing to put out over the radio, but at the same time, I know for me, and I'm, I'm guilty like everybody else, is that as soon as you hear nothing showing, your mind just stops. You're just, okay, there's nothing to it. 
this was a good example of, especially as the first or second arriving companies, you really need to be still with your head on a swivel. You need to come off dressed. You need to come off with your air packs. You need to have hand tools and, and water cans and everything else. So if you find something, hey, maybe you don't stop it, but maybe you can slow it down and, and get the other companies in there and, you know, affect a rescue or, you know, preserve some property. But that was kind of the first call where, you know, I'd always had that mentality. I'd always push people to you drive with this crew. You're going to carry a tool. You're going to carry that. We're going to carry the water can. And that isn't a popular idea with everybody or every fire department, but I believed in it. And, and here was finally my call where it reinforced why I had been doing all these things for all these years. And so I took advantage and I wrote it up and sent it into a person that I've been put in contact with at fire engineering. And they said, Hey, we want to publish your article. And I'm really, that's interesting. I didn't see it going that way. So I was very fortunate. My first shot writing, uh, they, they took it and pretty cool process. They tell you, you know, Hey, you know, it's ours now. I don't share it with anybody else. And, uh, I think they, they pay you a little bit of money for it and they, they send you your own copies of it. So I've got that locked away in my firebox at the house. And, you know, if nothing else, it's something cool. I can, you know, show my grandkids and, and not everybody gets the right article for a publication. So that's for a guy that was flunking out of community college before he went in the Air Force. I thought it was pretty cool that here I am, you know, I'm a published author, right? Fire Engineering Magazine. So pretty neat. Fire Engineering is available digitally now, but it's mostly known as a print publication. How did you expand into social media? How'd that come to be? I got into social media you know, you'll notice a common theme here with all my stories. You know, a lot of what originated for me as far as figuring things out or having these epiphanies was, you know, being at a bad time in my life, in my career. And, you know, I say bad time, you know, things weren't horrible. I was just, you know, mentally, I was in a weird place. At the time, I thought it was a lot of people, but looking back on it, it was probably me and how I was being. But anyway, I had gotten into the training stuff and I started following some pages on social media. And uh, one of them that I came across is called Trial by Fire. It's run by a guy named Jared Sergi, who works for the Norfolk Fire Department in Virginia. And he was just putting out some awesome stuff, really resonated with me. It was kind of the, you ever have those things where like you get the right thing at the right time, you get the right person, the message that you need to hear at that time. And that's kind of what it was for me. I messaged him, I guess. I don't know why. It's kind of weird to just message some random person you don't know, but uh like I said, he, what he was putting out was really helping me, and I thought he should know about it. So I sent him a message on Facebook, said, hey, you know, this is what's going on. This is where I'm at. You know, I really appreciate your stuff. And we kind of got to talking. In the process of that, we kind of became friends, and we're trading ideas back and forth like firefighters do. And, you know, one day he said, hey, man, you know, you've got some really cool stuff that you talk about. It's kind of unique approach. You know, you start your own Facebook page. <laughs> like, man, you're crazy. I don't know nothing about that. I'm not very experienced. Uh, I don't really know what I bring to the table that way. Like, no, man, like, seriously, you've got some good stuff. You know, share it, dude, do it. And he gave me a lot of advice on how to go about that. I didn't know how to make a Facebook page. I had enough trouble on my own Facebook page. Long story short, I decided, hey, screw it. I'm going to go for it. I don't know why. Nobody will probably read it anyway. So this will just be a cool way to vent my feelings here for a week or so, and I'll get bored with it, and nobody will follow it anyway, and, you know, I'll go back to regular life. But, uh Luckily, uh, I met some good people through that process that said, hey, you know, if you're going to do it, we'll share it. Or, hey, I know this guy. He runs another page. We'll share it. So I started writing. And some people liked it, and they shared it. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And, and then here we are today. So that's kind of the short version of how I got into it and why I'm still doing it, I guess. And you're teaching classes now? I am. That was another accidental side effect of the social media thing. But, again, same group of people. I didn't really know much about conferences at the time i thought you had to be a you know a, a salka or a bruna senior somebody to teach at firehouse expo and stuff like that 
these guys I'm talking to, they run these pages. Like, hey, you know, we teach classes, you know, take your ideas and take a topic you're passionate about, something you like, and put together a class and submit it. So I did. And I got picked up. I think the first conference I did was Fire Rescue East in uh, Daytona. It was a little one-hour class. I got a friend named Ben Martin. He runs uh, Embrace the Resistance. He's out of Henrico County, Virginia. Him and Jerry were down there, too. So they came to watch my first ever attempt at presenting a class. And I'll tell you, for somebody who, if you've never done it, it's extremely humbling to get in front of a bunch of people and talk if you're not used to it. But, you know, we all have coping mechanisms. In the middle of this 45-minute lecture, I was given about pride and passion in the fire service. Apparently, I yawned at myself. <laughs> Come to find out, that's kind of my tell for when I'm nervous is I yawn. Uh, but I had no idea, so I, you know, I had to sit back and think about it. And, you know, God, I'm yawning. Who knows? These people must have been bored in the class. But yeah, that was cool. I got through that one. I had submitted for a few others, and and I've been very, very fortunate. I've been to Firehouse World out in California twice. I've done Firehouse Expo. I've done a lot of state conferences. I'm headed back to Virginia next week to do the company officer summit they do up there. Virginia is a great state for fire stuff and leadership. And I've done a, a few individual departments as well, and I'm still scheduling. So I've, I've got people asking, like, hey, you know, I'd like to do your class. You know, what would it take to come out here and do it? I believe in what I talk about. I think it's a good message. It's just about preserving the fire service and keeping it as a calling and doing all those things that we've done for decades that make people want to be a part of it. And as long as people are, are willing to have me and, and like what I have to say, I'll keep doing it within reason. If I can make it work with family and job, obviously that comes first, but it's pretty cool, Scott. And you get so much more information, not only about the fire service, but yourself by being able to go to these places and interact with people that are really into the fire service at the conferences. And then at these other departments, just to see how other people do things and get that input, that feedback and pretty satisfying and humbling at the same time to teach a class for three or four hours. About things that you probably think are fair Really common, and that's something I struggle with. Is well, does anybody really want to hear me talk about this? But it's not as common as you think a lot of the times in a lot of places. It might be from one or two people, but you'll find that the departments as a whole, you know, the attitude of being kind of like we are, where we're really involved in the fire service, is kind of a dying thing. So to sit and talk to these people and to have people come up to you after class and thank you and hey man, you know, you talked about this and let me tell you this story or this brought this together for me and I'm going to do this with my crew or I'm going to go teach this tomorrow. It's really neat to me to see it come full circle and realize that you might be nobody in your own fire department, but if you really know something or you have a good message, that you can have that impact on people that are thousands of miles away in some cases. Yeah, one of the things that's drawn me to your articles and your social media page and your message is not only just the relevance of it, but you're a high-quality writer. It's very well put, and I also find that it's not confrontational. You're just putting it out there, and if anybody wants to think on it or interact with it, they can. Talk to me about the message and where you feel it's directed and what kind of positive and maybe what kind of negative feedback you've got from it. So I appreciate the writing thing. People tell me I write well. I don't always see it, but hey, if that's what people think, that's, that's awesome. Um, I would attribute that to my father. He's actually an English teacher. He did a stint in the Army. He got out for a little bit. He was an English teacher before he went back in, so I guess it kind of runs in the blood that way. All those years of him critiquing my high school writing, I guess, paid off finally. But the message is pretty simple. It's just all about embracing the calling of the fire service. I think we've done a disservice to our profession by turning it into a job. And my saying is it shouldn't be a job. It should be the job. And I think if you want the public to hold it in a higher esteem, if you want it to be attractive, 
like it always has been to bring people to the table, then you need to treat it that way. And when we downplay its importance, when we downplay what we do, I don't think it's good for the fire service. I don't think it's good for the public. We had amazing men and women that came decades before us that worked very, very, very hard to elevate our profession from the others through selfless service and being there for the community and and doing whatever it took and putting themselves at risk, not unnecessary risk, but putting it on the line when it needs to be. And the more that we try to turn the fire service into some kind of corporate thing, you get away from that. Society's changing and got all these things that I think work against us. And I think people are kind of overly sensitive these days. And that's not to say we don't need to evolve and we don't need to change and, you know, keep up with things. We don't need to be more inclusive and maybe a little less standoffish, you know, when it comes to some of our traditions that are probably outdated and need to go. But I think you can still develop a culture in a fire department where people want to be there. They want to do the job. They want to take it seriously. They want to train to be good at it and not use it as a hangout. So what my message primarily pertains to is keeping alive the traditions that make people buy in, you know, and a lot of time it comes down to silly stuff. It's letting guys have slogans for their companies, letting the companies wear a company t-shirt or build the kitchen table with the company logo, letting people go to the grocery store. Depending on where you come from, these things are common and, and maybe they're not. You're sitting here saying, hey, what is this guy talking about? We do all these things. There are many places that don't. And I think that's kind of a side effect of the fire service. It's still very regionalized. So, you know, if you work in Maine, you may not understand the struggles that are going on for the guys out in California or down in Florida. What I have found through social media is that if you put out a message that tries to bring people together, you'll get them all in that same conversation and they start learning from each other. Aside from just the cultural side of it, I really am trying to push development kind of on two fronts. The first one being the younger crowd, the probation period to maybe when you're running for your first promotion that three, five, seven, whatever years it may be for your department, hopefully for some people it's less. But mainly what I learned in my career, or maybe what I didn't learn of all these things that are out there for you. And I think it's funny with like the conferences and the training stuff, how We have a bad habit of only sending training personnel or officers or chiefs to these things because they are expensive a lot of the time and you want to get some information back. But I don't know that it always correlates down because if I send the second year firefighter to an engine class, they're going to get something different out of it as a nozzleman than say the company officer is going to get or the training chief or even the fire chief for that matter. So what I wanted to do was to kind of show the younger people like, hey, these are out there for you and maybe don't wait on your department to send you. Maybe take some of this money that you're making, especially if, you know, maybe you're living at home, you know, you're not married, you don't have kids, you've got a bunch of money if you're in the fire service, as far as I'm concerned, if you don't have a bunch of bills. So go ahead and invest it now before you have all those things, you have the most precious thing, which is time. So use it and go out there and train. And hey, here's the different conferences that you can go to. And here's the National Fire Academy you probably won't hear about until somebody's trying to get you to go for your executive fire officer. But they do all these other wonderful things too. And they have all these other classes you can take. And hey, call your state fire academy. Or check out this private training group that may be in your region or travel to your region. Go take nozzle forward. You know, God, that class changed my career, my life, probably. Yeah, same. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anybody who's taken it and hates it, which speaks volumes for it. And I heard your episode with Aaron, and I'm still trying to figure out why you're talking to me, because Aaron, to me, is, I know he's very humble, but he's on a whole different level with fire stuff. But anyway, just to get the younger crowd 
to understand that there's all these things out there. And these are all things that I learned about, I think, far too late in my career. I think if I had known about Firehouse Expo and this conference or this class when I was a two, three, four-year guy, I would have not made as many of the mistakes that I've made coming up or been able to be more skilled at this or that or made up for maybe some deficiencies that experience, you know, a lot of places, you know, you're not getting the experience anymore. And that's another side of it. We're so focused on on the job training, but we don't really have necessarily the same amount of jobs anymore for guys to learn from. So why not go out and do it early in your career? And then the flip side, what I'm getting into now a little bit is the short staffed officer aspect and how that translate not just tactic wise it's different in the firehouse it's you and one other person in the firehouse the whole dynamic and balance as far as peer and boss and friend and supervisor is completely different than if you run in a house that has 12 to 15 people in it riding on two or three pieces and a chief officer it's a whole different ball game so i think we do a bad job on both fronts as far as the formal education in the fire service as a whole of the officer one series the fire one series i don't really think we expand on it enough and i think it's very designed around the traditional metropolitan model of fire service like a chicago or a la or a new york which that's great for them they've got the people for it but that doesn't always translate to suburban and rural america that's kind of where i'm at with that now and just overall pushing that servant leadership, that accountability on the personal level of, hey, you know, don't be like I was for years where you're so focused on the huge picture that you're a small part of and instead focus on yourself and that small part and, you know, be accountable, make people around you better, make the fire service better. And if we all do that, we grow together and we preserve this occupation that we've grown to love and hopefully we keep it in that same spotlight that it has been in for years. You mentioned to me as we were leading up to finally being able to chat that your writings are very often aimed at yourself. So talk to me about how you approach writing those messages and somehow sometimes that can be perceived wrong by people and they take it the wrong way. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny how that works. And, and I've been guilty too. And you can dumb it down to your own personal Facebook page, right? Somebody will share a meme and you're like, oh, shots fired. You know, my friend is mad at me because of a personal attack on me. And I think it's kind of that thing where if, if you read into something, there's probably probably something there on your end that maybe is making you think that. And so what I have tried to do with writing is that, you know, I won't say that there's never been a time where I wrote something that was not directed at somebody because it has been and we're human and it happens and it is what it is. But a lot of the time, the topics that I write about are either something that I have just come up with. And I won't say I'm the founder of the idea or the inventor of it because we all know the fire service for every idea I have, there's 10 other people in other parts of the world having the same idea. They just haven't put it down on paper. But something either I've always believed in or thought would be good for the fire service or based on the experiences I have, something that people would benefit from, or more specifically, something, you know, kind of like the call, like I told you earlier, where I left my helmet on the bumper, you know, where I'm beating myself up because I'm mad that I was that careless. I was that complacent. It's funny, though, you can sit down and write something directed at you, but everybody that reads it that's going through that same thing is going to assume it's directed at them. And it's kind of that shoe fits wear it thing, right? You know, if you don't like what it says, then change something about yourself. And that's a struggle. I write about things that I have failed at miserably. I write about things that I have tried to do in my own career, my own life, my own departments that I haven't been successful in, but I still believe in it and I want other people to try it write about things where I've approached them wrong in my career and we don't get do-overs. My way of coping with it is to say, hey, let me take something that I didn't do right 
let me throw it out there. And then maybe just maybe somebody reads it and it changes their approach or it changes how they act or it changes, you know, their tactics or whatever it may be. And if they do better than I did, whether they're in my department or your department or any department, the fire service is better for it. And maybe it'll be kind of like I was with trial by fire. Maybe it's that one person reading it that's going to say, hey, I believe that too. And I think that I can go out and do classes and lectures and write things and, and they make a positive impact. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people just take things personally. And, you know, like I said, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. And I've been very low key about what I do for that reason, because I didn't want the message to get lost in my mistakes in the bridges I've burned, in the way that I've treated people in the past, I just felt like it was better to let this resonate with people. And my name doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter to me that I wrote it, that people know that. I just want them to get something out of it. And then, you know, what I've been very fortunate with, and actually somebody just shared it yesterday, a, a guy that's on a department near me who had found the page and had said, hey, man, I, I wrote something. Would you share it? And I think it's cool. I've had a couple times where people have wrote something up and said, hey, you know, would you mind posting this? And absolutely. Here's a follower of the page submitted this. I think that's awesome. And then I get a lot of people that'll message me and say, Hey, this is going on in my fire department. I'm trying to look for something to share to kind of address it, to kind of get people to think, but I don't want it to come from my page because, you know, either they'll take it wrong or I'll get in trouble or whatever. But if you were to write something about it, I could share it. And that way I could kind of vent without it really being directed at me. And I think that's cool too. So a lot of the time it won't even be something going on in my life. It won't be something going on in my department. It's something that I was asked to write about, and I try to do it if I can, but I tell people straight up, if I don't have an opinion on it or if I've never experienced that in my career or my travels, then I'm not going to write about it for you because I don't think I'm qualified. But overall, yeah, it's a lot about me in a lot of ways and, and my struggles personally and professionally and growing up and maturing or, or maybe not maturing in a lot of cases and missteps I've taken, situations I've addressed wrong, or when I felt beaten down or I felt wrong, you know, I, I sat down and I wrote about it. And I hope that it helps other people get through it. And, and indirectly, a lot of time it helps me get through it because like I said earlier, you know, that's my vent. I, I don't always need a solution. Sometimes I just need to be able to let it out and people don't always want to hear it to their face. So write about it instead and serves that purpose. So you and I definitely align where we feel that social media and YouTube included, these are tools for good. They're tools for self-improvement and having access to so many other people's information and ideas. It really is a treasure trove and our ignorance is our own fault if we choose not to use it. Give me an example of when you know, you've used videos and actually transitioned that to skills you've used and it's changed how you've behaved on the fire ground. Yeah, I'm with you there. Technology is like the greatest and worst thing to ever happen to us. It gives everybody an opportunity to share whatever they want, which is great most days, and then it's horrible other days. The hard part about it is showing restraint. And it feels hypocritical because, like I said, I run a social media page. I write things. But it's so much easier to get on there and watch somebody's helmet cam and just totally bash them with your keyboard without knowing a thing about them their level of training, their resources, or more importantly, the call at hand, right? You have like a one-dimensional view of it. You have that one viewpoint. And people, they get off on that stuff. And there's literally social media pages that are firefighters under fake accounts, but that's out there. And that's horrible. And that's not to say that, again, this goes back to not even being negative or positive, but just being realistic. You know, if something's bad, something's bad, and go ahead and, you know, say it. But, but you can say it without being a jerk about it, I think, is where we've missed the mark a lot of the time. One thing that I do 
especially with training stuff, is I'll stick the GoPro on a wall or, you know, turn a helmet cam on or stage my phone somewhere and say, hey, let's go through this evolution. I'll record it and watch it back. And I can tell you, you want to get humble real quick about your ability or lack thereof, go ahead and watch a helmet cam of yourself going and doing something. And it has this amazing little thing attached to it, which is a clock. And I used to think I was high speed, Scott. And then I watched one too many helmet cams of me taking 45, 50, 60 seconds to get my freaking mask on in the yard. You know, what is that? That's horrible. That's not even close. So that was kind of my motivation to go back and really work at getting masked up with my gloves on and doing things like that. So if you want to start somewhere with critiquing people, start with yourself. And when all of your footage is flawless, then by all means, go out there and attack everybody else. And you know, I'm sure somebody I know will listen to this and say I'm hypocritical because I run my mouth about how people do things all the time. And that's true. That's human nature. But I am just as critical of myself. Maybe not publicly. Maybe I don't go out and broadcast all the time. But I sit back and watch my own stuff. But I'm not going to critique anybody on something that I can't be critiqued on myself. Going back to Nozzle Forward, one of the benefits of that program is that once you take the class, you do get access to their library information. So when I tried to bring those skills back to my crew, you're only there for a couple of days to learn. I mean, you're basically changing the, everything you have known about hose movement, as far as I'm concerned, unless you're fortunate enough to work for somewhere that has taught that stuff from your academy. But I can't go to every nozzle forward class in the country. I'm due again. It's been a couple of years. I need to go back. I need to refresh. But when I'm trying to show those ideas to other people, I can pull those videos up that Aaron has made and say, this is how you do it. Hey, I'm refreshing myself and I'm finding out, hey, I've been teaching this wrong or, hey, I've been going about this wrong. And I just think it's a lot easier to be able to visualize something, right? And, and even if it's on a screen, I get it. You know, the computer is not the save all end all of training, but it's so much easier for people to process how to do something by watching it, whether that's in person or on a screen is irrelevant to me, but I can sit here and explain to you how to do a clamp slide. But if our vocabularies don't line up, it's not going to work. So if I can show you a video of a clamp slide, it's a whole different ball game, right? On the flip side of that though, that's where we're losing a lot in the fire service right now, because the nozzle forward stuff is a great example. I see people all the time teaching the basic kind of idea of nozzle forward, but they don't understand the mechanics or the principles or the tactics that go with it. So they're teaching a couple of moves that they saw somewhere, but they don't have the understanding of what those mechanics go into. They don't understand when to use one versus the other. They don't understand why it's happening. And that's the stuff you're only going to get from taking the class in person. You have people right now, they're getting turned off to certain tactics because quite frankly, somebody is watching them and they're being taught wrong. Again, it goes back to that balance. Social media, YouTube, they're tools, but they're not the end-all, save-all. They're not a replacement for going to hands-on training or classes at your local fire academy or going to the bigger conferences. You have to get out there with the experts, which I am not one of, but these people that teach these tactics and these skills all over the country and the world, for that matter, and you have to take it in person with them. Where I bring in the videos and the social media and the YouTube is, that's kind of your holdover. That's kind of your review when you need to kind of knock the rust off of things. I mean, what do athletes do? They have game film, right? I know sharing things on social media is this hugely divided topic as far as helmet cams and dash cams and GoPros. We don't want to be bashed. Well, just because you record it doesn't mean you have to put it on the internet. It doesn't mean that you can't kind of go through it and edit it if you want to, but you should be able to put helmet cams on your people, dash cams in your truck, and take that footage and trust that your people are not going to share it without authorization. And if, if they do, then deal with them. But 
it is so important to bring that footage back to your own department so you can critique your people using your equipment, your buildings, your calls. And that, to me, is where it starts, and you can grow it from there. Yeah, as far as critiquing skills, you really shouldn't critique a skill until you've perfected it and then applied it and see how it works. And to build on what you were saying with Aaron, he developed a system. So learning one part of that system isn't going to give you the full picture. People have to do a deeper dive than just the skim look that they want to take one glance at and make some judgment. And I think that's an easy way out for a lot of people too, is to say, oh, well, I don't personally like that part of it. So I'm just going to do that part. And then you get that whole passive aggressive. Well, I guess if you're going to improve one thing, it's better than nothing, which is true to a point, but it's becoming very normalized to basically cherry pick which parts of tactics and strategies want to use and then try to apply them together. And it doesn't work. I mean, you have to adapt. If you run a two-person company instead of a five-person company, then obviously you're not going to be able to advance hose the same way. If you've got a 500-gallon tank versus a 1,000-gallon tank, the way that you do water supply, the way that you do tack off a tank water is probably going to be different. So there's going to be adaptation there. But, but like you said with Aaron, he built a system. So you need to understand the system of these things before you can adapt them. You can't just take what you think is cool or, in many cases, what you think is the easy part of it. And that's why you want to do it because nobody wants to work anymore. Nobody wants to go out there and fail. The theme I think I've had with what we've talked about is failure and how much we grow from it. And if you're not willing to go out there and fail and fail and fail and fail, you're never going to get better. And this whole one and done thing where people are just going to go out there till they get it right once and then call themselves taught and forget about it for six months, it doesn't work. And you're going to get exposed. And I can tell you that because it's happened to me. I thought I was a lot more experienced than I was. I thought I was a lot more skilled than I was. And I probably don't do it as much as I should, but you'll find me out in the bay working on my mask ups to this day. They can always get better. You'll find me going out there and making a pack of hose and just practicing my layouts. And I'm coming off the officer seat now. That's not my primary responsibility. But guess what? There may be a day where either I work overtime or I trade with somebody or it just comes that time. We have a full crew and we need a second line. And guess who's free to grab it? Me. We can't just forget things because we promote or we transfer to a different type of apparatus. We've got to be out there perfecting those things. And it all comes with failure. And you don't learn without failure. Everybody's so focused on success all the time, which is the goal. But the failure is really the growth point that is being underplayed by a lot of people. So we've mentioned Darren and and Nozzle Forward and Jared and Trial by Fire. You also mentioned Ben Martin and Embrace Resistance. Anyone else come to mind when you think about mentors and leaders and people that have helped you along the way? Yeah, I've got quite a few, and it's kind of funny. I listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff, and I always think it's cool when people take time to single out the people. So, you know, obviously you said Ben and Jared, they've been my two big ones. They've done more for me than I can ever repay them for as far as just advice and guidance and mentorship, not only with just doing the teaching and the social media, but just my fire career in general. These are guys that I go to when I need somebody to look at a resume or, you know, I'm asking about a class or this person or that person. Jared just wrote a book. It's about to come out. Awesome stuff for him. Ben runs the Fireground Commander Conference in Richmond, Virginia, which is awesome. I got to go last year, be a, kind of a part of the staff there. and He's got some big names lined up. Tommy Gorin with Flashover Leadership. He works out in Missouri. He's got an awesome leadership class, second to none. Talk about the stair climb stuff. He's big into the stair climbs. He goes all over the country participating and helping uh, coordinate those. Sean Egan works for Buffalo Fire. Uh, he does first few tactics for the Urban Engine Boss. He's at FDIC. He also does the Thin Red Line podcast, another great one to listen to. 
Josh Creamer, another guy that comes out of Missouri, he has a class called Normalizing Excellence, which you're at one of these bigger conferences. He teaches a lot there. That's a great one to check out. John Buttrick, Coastal Fire Training. I mean, this guy, he is like the wizard of forcible entry. I think if you give him like another decade, he's going to be the lookier of forcible entry. I mean, he's just got it lined up. OJ Koloje, Magic City Truck Academy uh, out of Birmingham. They do a jam up class. They have a conference too, Deep South Fire Conference, which I'm fortunate enough to be teaching at this year. But I've taken his class and man, his whole cadre, Clay McGee, just all these guys that are involved with that, second to none. So that's just a handful. Well, I can name out another one that's been big for me is Jim McCormack runs FDTN, Fire Department Training Network up there in Indy. Jim came across the page. He's been gracious enough to share some of my writing in the FDTN newsletter the past couple of years. He's given me advice when I needed it. You know, stand-up guy, as smart as they come. Still trying to get up there to do his program because I hear it's kind of like the Disneyland for firefighters. So that's kind of on my bucket list. Yeah, same. We could probably do three hours on people that you should subscribe to and follow and all that stuff. But that's kind of my main circle. Those are the people that I really go to and I really believe in what they're doing. I've taken all of their classes with the exception of John and Coastal Fire, which I'm trying to work on getting it down to where I am now so I can learn a little bit more about forceful entry. But they're all great. So I just can't say enough about them. I've been compiling a list of them on the podcast website. So you've definitely mentioned a few new ones that I'll add on there. You could write an entire book about influential fire service people. You'd have to put out volumes, just keep coming out like encyclopedias. I'm showing my age, I guess, but you know. (laughs) True. So this benefit of technology connecting all these people across the country, across continents, across the world, it's really expanded the family of the fire service and shows a different side of the brotherhood too. Speak to me about your views on those terms, brotherhood and family. Yeah, Brotherhood's tough for me. I believe in it 100%. I just, I haven't been the best keeper of it in my career, I guess. I've done people wrong. I've done things I shouldn't have. You know, I'm human just like everybody else. I get you can't change it, but people don't really understand that sometimes. If you put yourself out there, if you try to better yourself, if you're outspoken, it really comes off as arrogant to a lot of people or they'll think you're pretty hypocritical because, hey, you're saying one thing, but maybe, you know, that one time two years ago, you didn't do that. And what they don't realize a lot of time is a lot of that growth that we've talked about comes from those things. And a lot of those views, that's kind of where they started at. In my experience with people that teach, especially at the bigger levels is that it's out of humility. It's trying to improve things that either they weren't good at or that they didn't excel at in a lot of ways, maybe messed up, and they're trying to prevent other people from doing it. So I'm weird to talk about that because I don't want it to come across wrong, and I'm sure there's people out there that probably would sit there and be like, oh, you know, Mark doesn't do good with the brotherhood, and that's fine. There's people that are entitled to that opinion that have experienced that, and then there's other people that are just speaking because, you know, they don't like me for whatever reason, that's fine. But I think the big thing with our brotherhood, though, that we're kind of getting into right now is just kind of the name thing with it. It depends who you ask. You know, I know quite a few female firefighters. Some adamantly hate it. They look at it as a fraternity and some are on the job just like you. I could really care less. We're kind of hung up on it in a lot of ways. By definition, it means a community of people that are linked by common interest. That definition says nothing about gender. And if that doesn't define the fire service, what does? If you want to get hung up on the word of brotherhood, that's your prerogative. I think we're just kind of wasting air at that point. It's kind of like arguing over VES and VEIS, right? You can get in these words all day long and be polarized and hate each other for it. But I think maybe family is a better term as we do become inclusive, as we have more women in the fire service. And if it's all men, you're still a family, right? So maybe that's a better term for it to call it the fire family. 
I don't know, one's traditional, one's modern. I mean, you can go down that as many ways as you want. If you're going to embrace diversity, you've got to look not at the word, but what we're doing to include people. You have to look at the things we're doing to give them input. And one of the things that I have learned by sitting down with people that are different from me, whether it's by race or experience or gender, is that one part we miss in this conversation is who has input. So if you have a bunch of people that are making these decisions, that are making these standards, the people making them are not representative of everybody, then they're going to naturally want to make a standard that leans more towards people that are like them. So it's very important that we get the input from everybody and that we don't divide ourselves trying to be inclusive, which I feel like is kind of what's happening right now. We're, we're kind of finding more ways that we're different by trying to include people, and that's just stupid. We need to get past the fact that diversity is not about gender and race. It is about differences in experience and upbringing and education and ability. You and I, we probably look the same, right? But, you know, our life experiences are 100% different. We are diverse. You live in Canada. I live in Georgia. It doesn't get much more diverse than that in a lot of ways. But, you know, we have a lot in common at the same time. So I think our communication needs to improve overall with the brotherhood and the family aspect of it. If we're going to grow together, we've got to really focus on doing that instead of just trying to fight over these words and what they mean. With the theme of brotherhood, one thing that I've learned over my career is that I think we're at the point now where we're too fast to let people into it, and then we're also too fast to kick them out. So when I say that, what I mean is that if you join my fire department tomorrow, and today you start, you walk in a firehouse at you know 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, that you're automatically part of the brotherhood. I don't think we make people earn it anymore. And by earn it, I mean by showing that they want to be there by putting in work, by doing what they're supposed to do, by trying to at least understand our tradition and hopefully be a part of those traditions, and then going on calls with us and showing that they're there for us, they're there for them, they're doing what they need to be doing. That's not to say that we catch a call on your first minute of your shift and something bad happens to you that we're going to leave you and your family high and dry. You know, you'll be a part of that brotherhood that way. But I think you need to earn a spot in it. And I think we need to do a better job of making people who don't earn their place through work, through experience, through selflessness, that we need to be focused on getting them out. But instead, what we do is that we will take people that have been part of our fire family for 5, 10, 15 years that screw up, they do something stupid, they get selfish, but they don't act in line with what the brotherhood like we think it should be. And then we're just, oh, well, you're out. And that's not right. That whole, you can do 99 things right, but you do that one thing wrong and you just kind of lost everybody. You know, that's not right to me. You're not going to like everybody that you work with. You're not going to enjoy being around everybody that you work with. You can't be expected to be perfect. Look at our brotherhood. It stretches across the globe. I just think the expectations are too high there a lot of time. And that the brotherhood really comes down to is when things are bad, when things are on the line, that we put our differences aside. We look at things as we're all here for the same reason and we're going to help you. Whether you deserve it, whether we want to, whether we like each other, it doesn't matter. We're going to help you. We're going to get through this when times are bad. And that doesn't mean we're going to get along every day. It doesn't mean that we're going to treat each other right every day, but it means that we're going to get over that crap when we need to. And we're going to come together when we need to. And I kind of compare it to, uh, you know, like the regular family, right? And if you talk to enough people, I think you'll find that Everybody somewhere down their bloodline has that relative, right? It might be the aunt or the uncle or, you know, the brother, sister, whatever it may be. But there's somebody that you really, really, really probably don't want to show up at Christmas. 
but you're not going to tell them they can't. There's just this kind of perfect image that we have, just like we see marketing on TV where it's just the perfect family and it's nothing like that. And I think where I really understood this the best was basic training. You take people from all different walks of life, from all different backgrounds, and you put them in the same room and you expect that they're just going to gel because they're there for a common purpose. And, you know, sometimes it's enough and sometimes it's not. But if you're around the same people for 10, 15, 20, 30 years in some cases, you know, you don't think at some point you're going to have a little friction there. You're going to have some fallouts. I don't know that it's practical. No, those are definitely great perspectives. I love those takes on it. One other thing to think about there, too, is that I think Brotherhood was kind of directed to begin with at on-the-job stuff. The cliche of you go, we go with backdraft. A lot of the time when the Brotherhood stuff comes under attack, it's all non-operational stuff. It's not about their performance on the fire ground or in the station or with the public. It's about how we're treating each other in the station, how we're treating each other off-duty. And that's part of it. And I get it. Trust me, I get it. But that doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human. And to me, if you're going to take somebody that maybe didn't treat you like you were part of the family that did you wrong and you are going to hold it against them for the rest of your life. Well, you're not living up to it either. That's a great point. This is one thing I love about talking to people about the same topic. You gain a number of different perspectives and you really get to reframe it and you can dispel a lot of the preconceived notions I think that you might have in your mind about things. I've learned that tenfold. I continue to learn that every time I talk to somebody. It allows you to be more self-aware and analyze your own views and beliefs and opinions and maybe reshape them. And then every time you meet somebody, you're constantly going through that process and you're refining yourself and hopefully you come out better on the other side. Well, speaking about refining yourself, fitness is a pretty important thing for you. So give me your take on that. Yeah. So I I was kind of into fitness, kind of in high school playing sports and I kind of got out of it, I guess, after I got out of the military, I, I don't really know why it was just easy not to, there's always something going on. And, you know, when you're young and you've got adrenaline and all that, it's easy. So as I got older, I think I started realizing one, the waistline, I'm not a big guy by any means, but when your pants start fitting tighter, you know, it costs money to replace them, right? So, you know, hey, what can you do? Well, you can get in shape. I'm not really a big guy. I'm like 5'9", 160. I have to work very hard to be decent at the job. I don't have the strength some of the bigger people have, so I have to work hard at it. It's kind of funny how people have started saying I'm into fitness and I don't really know that that's the right label. I just kind of got into trying to better myself and I tried to get stronger and to preserve my career and cut down on injuries. I started posting workouts kind of as a gag, to be honest with you. Straight up, I just did it to piss people off, I think. Kind of like, hey, I'm working out, look at me. (laughs) And it kind of turned into a thing. The running joke was, you know, if you didn't put it on Facebook, it didn't happen, right? Well, you know, like I said, tell me I can't. I'm going to go do it anyway. So what happened out of that is kind of that whole, you know, sometimes even bad intentions come out good on the other side, right? But I would have people that would send me a message on Facebook, not comment on it, but just send me a message and say, hey, you know, I just wanted you to know, like, watching you work out at work or watching your crew's workouts that you post motivated me or my crew to do this, or, Hey, you know, I haven't worked out in 10 years and you know, your journey to get in better shape has motivated me to get back in shape. And that's the stuff people don't see. And that's kind of why I say you got to see all sides of it. So if all you see is me posting a workout every day and you're taking it personal or, you know, like, Oh, he's just trying to be a jerk. That's cool. But the reason I kept doing it is because I had a good handful of people saying, keep them coming. Like, I don't really know how to make a workout, but I can basically take yours and we can do it as a crew. I do it in my personal life. And, and, you know, that was cool to me. So that's kind of how I got into that. You know, I'm like everybody else, Scott. I get with it real hard, hot and heavy for a while. And then I don't. I'm like, right now, 
I just took a new job. It's kind of disrupted my routine. So I'm not working out like I should be and I can feel it. And I know it. And, you know, I'm taking steps to get back into it. But I think with fitness in the fire service, what we need to understand too, is that, you know, we're not looking for a body type with fitness. We're looking to be functional. And too many people associate fitness, you know, with like bodybuilding. And I say to my classes, you don't have to have six pack abs to be good at the job. I know quite a few dudes that are probably borderline overweight that have more endurance than half these guys that spend three hours in the gym. And you can actually overdo it in that aspect and where you're not flexible and you forget to work on your endurance and your cardio and all that stuff. So, you know, it's a good balance. I try to do a little time in the gym just to help build muscle, but I try to do functional exercise. I try to do things that simulate fire ground exercises. And if you look at some of the things that I share on my page about the workouts that we do, ask me about them. I can tell you that, hey, this movement is to simulate advancing a hose line. And this one's to simulate rescuing a victim. This one's to simulate crawling over things on the way out. And I try to set them up in a way that kind of goes through an evolution of we got there and this was our task and we did these movements so that when you do have to do them on the fire ground, it's not a foreign movement for your body to bend this way or that way or pick up something awkward. Anybody can pick up balanced weight, but it's those sandbags and dummies and stuff. They're unbalanced. It makes your muscles work different. That's a big part of it. And just understanding that there's a big mental side to it when it's not easy or convenient is when we really need to do it the most. We talked about in the beginning with that kind of negative talk of, you know, oh, you're not going to finish. You're not going to finish. Well, you know, guess what? I've put myself in gear through things that I was convinced I couldn't do. And that kind of goes back to the Facebook thing too, is that once you post it, you're kind of accountable for it in a weird way, right? I mean, I get it. Half the people probably could care less whether I actually did the workout that I posted, but I know you posted it. You said you were going to do it. So now you've got to push yourself whether you like it or not. And John Sparrow says a lot of the time, if you quit in training, you're going to quit on the fire ground. So fitness is a great way to shape your mental fitness as well, just to get out there and show yourself what you can do. Yeah, that's a great lead in for mental health talk. So has it helped your mental health and where do you stand on the perspective of mental health in the fire service right now? Yeah, I think it has in a lot of ways. I think it's a good stress reliever. I think sometimes when we think of stress relief, I think we're just instantly going to be flooded with some kind of euphoria, right? If your body is healthier, you process things better in a lot of ways or you're able to fight off stress when it does happen. I'm not one of those guys that I'm in a bad mood today, I'm going to go kill it in the gym. And actually, for me, it's the opposite. If I'm in a bad mood when I go into the gym, I'm going to be a bad mood while I work out. I'm not going to have a good workout. But that kind of goes back to that whole resilience thing where you're forcing yourself to do it and you're selling yourself. Things aren't good today, but you made it through this workout anyway, and there's your positive aspect at the end of it. And some people like to just go in there and go nuts and let out their aggression. And hey, if that works for you, you know, make it work. But for me, it's more of a, I'm having a better day if I went into the workout having a good day. But the mental health and the fire service overall, I just look at the calls that I run for society right now. Mental health is a weird place. And I think that we're experiencing the same thing. And then it's amplified by the sleep habits, the nutrition problems, the traumatic calls that we run, the things we see, the people we deal with on a regular basis. And I think that just kind of makes it worse for us in a lot of ways. But I think overall, the problem is really just life is moving at a rapid speed these days. And people are having trouble keeping up. Life is very overwhelming. And a lot of that is the negative part of social media, where everybody is always comparing themselves to what the neighbor down the road is doing or, you know, what their best friend in high school is doing or their ex-wife or husband is doing now. And they're so worried about keeping up that image that it's not about them. It's not about what they enjoy doing. It's not about what makes them happy. It's about being able to show the world this facade of a life, and that gets exhausting. 
it's very difficult to keep up with. And then the other side of that, what I've kind of noticed, especially with the younger people that are coming in the fire service, is that nobody really has personal contact anymore. We communicate through text messages and emails and, you know, emojis. And, you know, I'm guilty. I do it too. But nobody does that one-on-one stuff. Everybody's going to retreat to their bubble and see the world through a screen. And so if you walk up to somebody and you confront them about something or, you know, I was always taught when you talk to somebody, you look them in the eye. And it's very interesting to me to watch not even just kids anymore, but even people in their 30s and 40s, even some of the older crowds do that. They get visually uncomfortable if you look them in the eye. And people have told me it's intimidating. And I'm like, no, that's a sign of respect. And maybe that's my inability to evolve. But I just think it's ridiculous that you can talk to somebody and look at the ground the whole time. That's disrespectful. We wonder how everybody's got so sensitive is because they don't have that human talk. They don't have that feedback loop. You can do whatever you want to do on social media. You can share whatever you want to share. So you can censor out the bad things. And I get it. If you're having trouble at home, like Facebook is probably not the place to broadcast it. But in an odd way, I kind of give people credit who do that because they're courageous enough to put their flaws out there for everybody to see. And that's very hard for people to do these days. But what happens is when you have people looking from the outside in, all they see is all the positives. It's just unhealthy, I think, overall, because that's where we're getting our idea of what a good life is from. And so they're going to go there. They're going to go to their device. They're going to go to their social media. And guess what? If you scroll long enough, you will find somebody that either supports what you're saying or that has something that will make you feel good about what you're going through. And you just kind of get this big false impression overall, and you end up driving yourself crazy trying to keep up that facade until it crumbles. And then where are you? You're kind of in a bad place, right? Yeah, we're quick to react and comment on people's positive posts. And if you're going to post something where you're struggling, you know, it seems to be a bit uncomfortable or awkward for people, but what they can do is see it as an opportunity. That's your opportunity to actually have an impact on that person more than giving them the kudos on the positive. Hard conversations are hard for anybody. Nobody wants to tell somebody they're wrong. Nobody wants to tell somebody they screwed up. I struggle with that as a company officer of telling my people that, hey, you did this wrong, even if they did it wrong, because I hate seeing somebody's reaction where they're disappointed in themselves. They're not mad at you. They're just disappointed. At least I am anyway, when somebody tells me I've done wrong. But if you refuse to do that for people, then you're doing them a disservice on top of that. So if you tie it back into the fire service, why is it that if you send a message to somebody or you post a wrong picture about your training or a wrong meme or something that can be taken out of context, why are we going to jump on somebody for that? But hey, when they didn't advance a hose line right, they got spaghetti tangled up at the door, or their fitness falls short, or they didn't force the door right, we're not going to say anything about it. We're going to pat them on the back. Hey, great job, great job, great job. And then they go around the corner of the rig to put their lid up, and it's like, man, can you believe John screwed that up again? I mean, that's the world we live in right now, and there's so much irony there. Again, do they have that self-reflection to look at themselves and kind of figure out what it means? It's a weird dynamic. It's just like we're, we're one way on the internet, we're another way in person, and That's always going to be that way to a point. But you go back to the mental health thing, you know, what does that do for your mindset? It's almost like living a double life in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's really important to curate your feed for any social media so you can control what you're actually being exposed to. Who can people in our service look to and follow when it comes to mental health? The first name that comes to mind for me is Dina Alley out of Raleigh. She is phenomenal. She's super smart, super into it genuine, good person. She teaches all over the place. 
Rick George, he's out of Florida. I mean, dude, I mean, he's larger than life to me. He's, he's awesome. He's kind of like that uncle or brother that you wish you had. He's real authentic. His story, he owns it. He owns every one of his flaws and how they got him where he is. And he teaches classes on how to manage your stress. His energy, I mean, if you meet the guy in person, he's larger than life. I got the chance to see him talk at FDIC, and it was amazing. I talked to him on the phone one day, and I run into him, I think, at the Metro Atlanta Fire Congress, man. He's just, hey, brother, what's up? He's a trip. And then my other one is a guy named Dave Oklansky out of New Jersey, and he's like another one of these guys that's he's so smart and focused in on the mental health stuff. And he's real popular with the conferences. He goes outside of the fire store. He just teaches it in general, right? I mean, he does a lot with the healthcare stuff, too. And uh, if you get a chance to check out Laklansky at one of these conferences, he's anecdotal and, and scientific with the mental health stuff. So we've made some great progress in the service as far as mental health goes, and that's partly because we've been able to let go of some old mentalities and maybe some traditions that weren't necessary, and partly because I think we're focusing on some of the ones that we've lost. So talk to me about tradition and what you think we could keep and take with us and what do you think we could leave behind? Tradition to me, it's kind of under attack these days. I think it's so important that we do have traditions, but maybe that we adapt them to modern times. You know, everything can always use updates sometimes, or at least a revisit just to make sure it still applies right. So I would say it's things that we need to keep. The first one is just the calling of it. And it's hard these days because we're just having trouble getting people to join. And not only to join, but the ones that we have to stay. And I mean, the job has evolved, the time commitment, the certifications, the mission itself has expanded and expanded. People say it's not what it used to be. And I kind of call BS on that because most of us now have come into the fire service at a time where EMS and hazmat and all these things were a part of it. There's very few people around still that remember a time, you know, that they came on when firefighting was strictly firefighting. So I, I think that's a convenient excuse. And I love hearing kids that are 18, 19, 20, oh, I just want to run fire call. I'm like, why are you so salty, man? Like, I came on that job in 2001 and EMS was a thing then. So I don't want to hear about it. Just do the job that you came to do. But kind of like I said in the beginning, man, it's not just a job. We can't just hang benefits in front of people and try to find employees and get rid of all these things that got most of us here, which were the camaraderie, the relationship with the community and the mission, all these things that maybe aren't really happening anymore. At the end of the day, it is a job, but we spend a lot of time doing it. So how can you just try to find people that show up and go home? You've got to stop trashing the tradition and the company pride and the energy and, and everything that separates us. Who's wearing a shirt to dinner that says, hey, certified CPA at Hunt's CPA service? It's not happening. But you look around, there'll be people wearing fire shirts. That's something else for us. That's where we stand. That's where the public stands with us. And you've got to promote that. You've got to let people know like, hey, this is not just some nine to five job. This is not a cubicle. This is a whole different thing. This is a way of life in a lot of ways. And I think that kind of drive, that kind of outlook, that's what's going to make us put the citizens first. And if we get away from that, we're going to be in a really, really bad place as a profession. And we're already starting to see it. You know, numbers are down, not just for volunteering. It's now coming to the paid side where people applying to have a job at the fire department is down or the retention rate is down where people are just kind of trying it out. And they get in it for a year or two. We invest all this time and energy and money into you. And then you're out the door because, hey, uh, it's not really for me. Well, what did we tell them? Who did we put them in front of when they got here? Were we honest about it? Or did we set them up for failure with this by trying to paint this kinder, gentler picture of a blue-collar profession built on work and sacrifice and sweat? If we don't stop painting it wrong, we're not going to get the right picture. 
I kind of hope this next generation that's coming on now is going to start writing that ship because I don't feel like the generations of fire service now are doing a great job at preserving it. I think we've kind of taken the fire service for granted, taking all that hard work and effort by the people that came before us, and we've forgot about it. And then to piggyback on that, just the volunteer service as a whole. And I'll say this at the gate because somebody will probably listen to this and be like, oh, whatever, Mark hates volunteers. I don't like the combination fire service. I started as a volunteer, 100% volunteer fire department. I've been a part of a combination department. And what I see there is that it's very hard for both the career staff and the volunteer staff when they're combined, especially when it's kind of equal. It's heavy one way or the other. It kind of resolves itself. But when it's kind of a split, it's very weird because you kind of have volunteers that are calling a place home, but then you have the career staff that's actually in there as a home. And it's very hard for anybody to really take full ownership of the department at that point. So, so for me, I don't like the combination model. I get it's a reality. I get places have to do that, but it wouldn't be my first choice. But anyway, the volunteer side to me is so important for the pride part and the motivation because if you look at all the people that are out there advocating for our profession right now, most of them started as a volunteer or they're still in a volunteer house right now. And you are invested in your profession and the fact that you do it for free, right? You're there to be satisfied. You're there because you believe in it, because you truly want to serve your community, because you're there for the camaraderie. It doesn't get any purer than that. If we start losing that mentality, if we start losing those volunteers, eventually you're either going to have to put paid staffing in their place or you're just not going to have fire protection in those areas. And I think financially, if you look at the places now that have a completely volunteer service, what you would get paid staffing-wise will be nowhere near the same coverage that they traditionally have with volunteers. And maybe that's the reality of the future. You know, I, I don't know. But if you could just take something as simple as motivation and calling and put it on there, and maybe the call volume is less, and then you get paid crews that are in there, and it's a slow house. They're not doing it as often. Well, maybe that was enough to keep the volunteer people satisfied because, hey, you know, they had another life. They had other jobs that they were doing in the meantime, and then, you know, the call came in. They answered the call. They got to serve, and then they had other things to do. But when you're sitting there at a slow house as a career member, there's only so much busy work you can do, and, and the only other option is to either keep training every day, which – Quite honestly, it gets old. I mean, you're training for something that you don't get to do all the time. So it's just too easy to get complacent. You know, I hope it doesn't come off wrong the way I'm describing it. There's plenty of volunteer houses that go on more runs than a lot of career houses. And they're just as professional, if not more professional, in their service delivery. But the suburban and rural areas that are struggling to find people to keep their doors open, they're going to go without or they're going to pay for it sooner or later. And I don't think either side of the house, volunteer or career side, wins from that kind of arrangement. It's so important to me as far as just keeping up that calling that we do have a volunteer fire service. I'm no expert to solve the problem, but we're going to have to maybe relook at what the volunteer service is. Maybe it's crazy, but I think the training requirements are out of hand. You've got initial certifications. They, just, they take so long. It's such an investment these days. And like we talked about with mental health, life is busy, right? It's overwhelming. It's fast. And people just don't have the time anymore, or they don't want to give all that time. We need to relook at some of these extras that we're adding on top of it. Why is EMT the new standard? Why can't we have an EMR thing where we kind of take the first aid buddy care model from the military and we give people the equipment and the training to save lives, but maybe not the full scope of what EMS is doing. And 
you know, same thing with hazmat. Let the bigger departments run the hazmat companies. Let the private companies run hazmat, but give your people the tools to do decon and contain things and set up safe areas and lower those things. Because, I mean, the mission has changed, but the job, the firefighting job, what's really changed? I mean, construction has changed. Maybe the heat release rates have changed. We're learning all the scientific stuff, but the basic skills, the fundamentals are pretty much the same. So why not teach that? Focus on the fire suppression, the search, the ground ladders, the behavior. Teach that. Get the training requirements down. And then if you want to get into hose loads and water supplies and all these other things that are very department-specific, let the fire department teach you that after you're certified. Let that be your weekly drill night or your weekend training. If you can get them down, maybe a lesser hour certification is not as intimidating to somebody who was going to join and said, oh, well, you know, I don't have two or 300 hours of free time just to be able to run a call. You know, and even the career side, academies are six months or, or longer in a lot of places, and they cost money. You're paying people to be there, and you get these washout rates and people that don't make it. They just think it's out of hand. I don't, I don't really know where we're going with that. We just keep adding requirements and hours, and I don't really know that it translates to better service delivery. I would definitely agree. I think we need to reprioritize how we train and what we train on, more specifically what we train on and what demands are put on the suppression division and what we should be focusing on. We're definitely spread too thin, and there's only so many hours available on top of running calls. And very recently, I've noticed that our fundamentals have suffered. You have to be good at it all. This is kind of the, the problem with staffing, the death of the specialty company. We're a jack-of-all-trades now. We're a giant rig that's designed to do fire rescue, EMS, hazmat, all, all in one, and taking out the part that you need staffing to do that, that not only do you need people to carry out all these missions, but you need specially trained people. And it's very naive to think that everybody that comes to the fire department is not only going to be interested or talented in every one of those missions, but also be able to mean proficiency in all of them at the same time. I just think we're going to get ourselves in trouble there. It's hard enough to deal with a lack of staffing with teaching things that don't necessarily reflect the current staffing for most people, but even worse to think that with less people, we can do more things. It's just impossible. Quite frankly, it's a lie when we tell people, hey, we're going to do more with less. You can hopefully do the same with less if you're lucky, but you will never do more stuff with less. It's just a crime that people say that kind of thing. As far as what to leave behind, you mentioned the phrase, everyone is a leader. Yeah, I hate that whole movement. In my main class, I kind of speak against it. And I get what it was intended for, Scott. It was meant to empower people, right? It was meant to say like, hey, if you have poor leadership, you can step up and you can fix that. And that's absolutely true. 100% true. But the problem is, is that the way it's being sold right now is that we have leadership positions in the fire service, right? Company officers, chiefs, stuff like that. So when you tell a brand new guy that everybody's a leader, so what he hears is that, oh, well, my company officer doesn't do what I want to do, or the chief says something that I disagree with, well, screw it, I'm a leader too, so I'm just going to do it this way. And that's not right. And we have this romance with leadership in the fire service right now, and I don't really know that we know what it means. We're just so focused on leadership, 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 that I don't really think we know what we're looking for. And this kind of movement of everyone is a leader, to me, was just kind of an excuse to not deal with the poor officers. You know, if you have people that are in a leadership role, they hold a rank that is associated with leadership and they're not being leaders, then fix them. Either train them, develop them, remediate them, or remove them. You don't tell everybody that they're a leader. You tell everybody to be accountable, that everybody should have input, that everybody should work together. You know, there should be no disrespect amongst the crew, but there needs to be that chain of command. 
we're kind of shifting from that paramilitary stance now. And what happens is you have these things that happen in the station, which is where everyone is a leader is the big excuse. But when we get on a scene and we're used to just overriding the people that are in charge of us, guess what happens on the fire ground? The same thing. You just start ignoring things. You start freelancing. You start doing what you want to do. And this concept is what keeps that attitude going around. So I say just everybody do their job. Work together. Be a team. Nobody should know who's the ranking person on that team if we're functioning well, right? At the end of the day, there's going to be somebody that's responsible for the paperwork and the discipline. And more importantly, like I tell people as a company officer, my job is about things going wrong. That's when somebody comes looking for me. Nobody comes to pat me, give me a high five, say, hey, you know, your crew's quite away today. It's, it's always some kind of deficiency, right? It's always a complaint. You know, something went wrong. So why does everybody want to be the leader? That's what you're responsible for is the damage control in a lot of ways, right? And if you're doing it right, the few times that somebody does, you know, take the time to acknowledge that you guys are doing good things, well, guess what? I'm passing that down the chain anyway. So you're going to get all the good stuff of it and, and not have any of the bad stuff. Just to tag on that idea too, that's kind of that misconception of servant leadership. Servant leadership is just leading by example. It's not getting your hands on everything all the time and taking the responsibilities away from the rest of your crew. You've got to have those rites of passage. You've got to kind of have that pecking order. It doesn't mean that you're too good for it. It doesn't mean that you can't take out the trash or wash the rig because you're the company officer or the battalion chief or the fire chief for that matter. But what it means is that there are other things that you are responsible for that the people that fall further down a ladder in your organization are not, and you have to deal with those things first. And unless that something that's a higher priority, you know, like I'm not going to go in and type a report when the rig needs to be put back together. We're going to load lines. We're going to clean it up. We're going to get the air packs back in service before I go write a report. But at the same time, if I have reports to write, I'm not going to delay those to go help the new guy scrub toilets because that's not my primary function. It doesn't mean if I don't have anything going on that I won't do it. It just means that I'm not running over there. And that servant leadership is kind of being taken that way where people are being looked down upon if they're not the chief officer that comes and cleans the whole station every day and you know gives his guys a break. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a weird phenomenon. I guess there would be an opportunity for everyone to be a leader for whoever's coming up underneath them to sort of model a proper behavior and be someone that they can go to. Not that they're officer that the person reports to, but there's opportunities to show the way for someone coming up behind you. That's what it was intended to be. I support it that way. And you're right. It is about modeling. It's about that next man up mentality, again, that we take from the military that, hey, if, if the captain goes down in a fire, somebody's going to have to step up and make these decisions. Or even something simpler than that. Hey, the lieutenant or the captain is off today. You know, who's going to move up? The next person. So we do have to lead that way. And that's a personal responsibility to me that everybody should have is to help the person coming in underneath them. Again, I just think the idea is being misconstrued and I think it's being taken to heart. And I think what started off as a very noble and very worthy effort has kind of turned into an excuse to ignore problems in a lot of ways and say, oh, well, you know, that company officer doesn't cut it, but everybody's a leader. So we'll just let this other guy who's further down the chain and, and on the career side, you know, gets paid way less. We'll let him do all this stuff and we won't hold the officer accountable. That's just crap. Do you find it more difficult now to make decisions on discipline or managing people because you have more rules and stipulations that you would have to refer to or a, a structure that's put on you in order to deal with it? Whereas before, say, even 10 years ago, you might have been able to just decide how you're going to handle it and handle it and it's done. And there wasn't anything that you would be called up on. 
I think it adds kind of a dynamic to it. I think you've got to kind of know the rules. I think as far as the fire service as a whole, you know, whether you're talking about your department SOPs or SRGs or you're talking about the NFPA stuff, I think there's some leniency there. I think it's built in and we forget that. We've taken a very rigid approach. Again, it's like going back to that corporate mentality where we've tried to remove the decision-making in a lot of ways. It's black and white, it's cut and dry, but it's not always that way. But I think that also goes back to forming relationships as a company officer or chief officer, whatever it may be, forming those relationships, the people above you, but also the crew and setting expectations down that are created around the rules because the rules are important. They exist for a reason or they shouldn't exist and just making sure that everybody's on the same page. And I think that if you're going out there, you're making an effort to do what the department or organization has set as the way they want things done within reason. And when you do deviate from those plans, that you are prepared to back it up with factual information of, hey, I made this decision because this, that, or the other, and right or wrong, it doesn't matter. You just need to be prepared to defend it. And as long as you're doing that, you have the interest of your people and the community and the citizens first, I don't really see how you can go wrong. I'm not big on the discipline side. I'm a firm believer that I don't want to say shaming, but I think if somebody's embarrassed by their shortfalls, at least for me, like I said, I'm going to beat myself up more than you can ever do. I don't care what paperwork you make me sign. I don't care how many days you take away from me. I have already beat myself up 100% worse than anything you can do to me aside from termination before we even sit down. That's just my mentality. Maybe that's not for everybody. And you're going to have people where you have to speak to them, where you have to do the scare tactics with the paperwork. But I'm a firm believer that if you've made it to the paperwork, you've already lost on both sides. We should have enough open dialogue, enough accountability for not only ourselves, but each other, that when we're screwing up and we're doing things wrong, we're just going to fix them. If I'm having to discipline you and pull out the rule book, then we're already way off course, and we're probably not going to come back from it, quite honestly. So I don't think so. I don't think it really handicaps you. I think you just have to have an approach where you understand what the regulations are, that your approach and your tactics account for them and include them. And if you're going to deviate, then support your decision, have some evidence for it. And so far, that's kind of worked for me. I'm pretty fortunate. I haven't really worked for many people that were really sticklers like that. I think as long as you spoke logically to them about what was going on, they were pretty open-minded about it. Again, having that humility to say, hey, look, I know this was wrong after the fact and it's not going to happen again and then following through on it. And sort of tagging on to people dynamics and management, Talk to me about white collar management versus a blue collar job. Yeah, it's a big one, right? We hear it all the time, especially in the Facebook world at the conferences, right? Like firefighting is a blue collar job. But what I don't think people appreciate and something I've kind of learned through higher education is that the management part, which everybody wants to dog management all the time, but there is a management part of running a fire department. In many cases, you're dealing with millions of taxpayer dollars, right? Like you can't just have anybody up there dealing with that. You need educated people. You need white collar people that understand how to talk to politicians and community leaders and know how to do budgeting and talk to voters and deal with people. That's not a skill for everybody. So that side of the house is very important. And everything that happens on the white collar side enables the blue collar side to be successful. You know, if you have somebody that can't manage money, that can't procure equipment for you, that can't get any kind of funding approved through the community because they either don't know how to do a PR campaign or talk to the elected officials, then you're going to suffer to do it right on the blue collar side, which is operations. But on the other side of that is that people have to remember that the mission, the service delivery of the fire department is blue collar. It's about getting dirty. It's about sweating. It's about putting in the effort to achieve the outcome that we want. And 
the more we get into the technology side, the more training kind of goes to internet-based. And we forget that this job is done on the ground. This job is done with our hands. Those two sides need to understand each other and they need to respect each other. But at the same time, they need to stay out of each other's ways in a lot of ways. If you're my fire chief, Scott, and I come to you and say, hey, you know, I need X piece of equipment on my fire engine. I went ahead and did the research for you of why it's better than what we have. And here's three quotes for where we can get it. And this is why. And here's four calls where we could have used it. You should probably, if we can afford it or you can make it happen, at least try to make it happen, you should probably take my word for it because you're entrusting me to do that job. But at the same time, I'm not going to come and tell you how to run the fire department. If you want my opinion on things, I will give it to you, but I'm not going to come up there and try to tell you how to do your job. So I think there's a balance there. But what everybody ultimately needs to remember is at the end of the day, this job is blue collar. When the rubber meets the road, when the fire department responds to the community, it is blue collar. It is enabled by white collar skills, but it is and always will be a blue collar profession. Can I hit you up with a few rapid fire questions? Sure. Eat together or brown bag it? So I say combination for this reason. Again, in my journey to be healthier, I've tried to improve my nutrition as well, which doesn't always align with the fire service meal. And rather than creating division where it doesn't need to exist, a lot of time I will bring my own stuff to work, but we eat as a company. And what we do in my department right now, which I think is the best way to approach it, especially with time and resources, is lunch, you're kind of on your own. We usually kind of sit down in a group and kind of eat lunch, but we just kind of do our own thing. And then dinner is where we should all be sitting down and eating together. Whether it's the same meal is irrelevant, but we should be eating together at the same time as a group. Crew workouts or solo? Crew workouts are preferred. Solo workouts are better than nothing. I've seen how awesome it is to work out as a crew. Even when you have the crew members that are maybe a little hesitant about wanting to get out there, don't want to do it. I think when you force them to get out there, they appreciate it. But when you have it going well and everybody's rooting each other on and pushing each other and supporting each other, I think that works its way back over to the operation side when it's time. So definitely the goal should always be to work out together. But if you can't get people to come out and do it, you at least need to get out there and do it yourself. You could transfer that to drill as a crew or drill solo as well. Yeah, same exact mentality. I've spent plenty of time drilling by myself. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I prefer to drill by myself because if I'm trying to perfect a technique like masking up is a great example. If I'm trying to perfect something that works for me, sometimes I don't want people watching. Sometimes I don't want people to feel pressured to do it the way I'm doing it. So there's a time and a place for that. But as far as any kind of evolution with some kind of fire ground skill or even EMS skill or rescue skill that you're going to be supported by other people doing, we should all be involved together and, and just the camaraderie part. But if you can't get anybody to train, at least go train yourself. At least somebody on the crew will be better prepared than they were yesterday. Shared dorms or separate rooms? Man, I'm down the middle on everything. I've had both. We kind of have a shared dorm right now, and, and I kind of like it because, you know, in the middle of the night when you get a call, everybody getting up kind of wakes you up if you're not really with it. But I've also had the shared dorm where you had the snoring person, and now I'm not sleeping. When you get the, the diversity stuff and, you know, having more women in the fire service, I would say it's probably better for us right now to just start going to the future with separate dorms and making sure that people understand that it's not a cave to go hide in, that we're going to hang out until bedtime, which is not four o'clock in the afternoon. It's probably somewhere more around nine or 10, unless you've had your butt kicked all day or you're on overtime or something. But that's probably the best way to go, especially when we get into, you know, mental health and sleep and quality of sleep and stuff like that. I think it makes sense. Smooth bore or fog nozzle? I'm a smooth bore all day long, and I'm going to give you my three-piece argument right here. <laughs> I had this conversation so many times. There's a time and a place for a fog nozzle. There should be a fog nozzle on a truck, but your primary attack line for a structural fire should be 
a, a smoothbore nozzle. It will clear debris more readily than a fog nozzle. It has no moving parts to break, and it is cheaper. That's it right there. I mean, the pressure thing is kind of out these days. They've come so far with, you know, low-pressure nozzles and same flows and all that. But like I said, you know, debris clearance, moving parts that have to be maintained in cost. I mean, you just can't argue with them. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, it just looks way cooler than a fog nozzle anyway. <laughs> it's lighter too, right? I think it is. I want a fog nozzle in the compartment. You know, they're kind of cool for attic fires, right? When you got no roof to, you know, bounce anything off of. And they're great for car fires, but it doesn't get much simpler to me than a smooth bore, you know? So I'll give you three options on this one. Truck, engine, or rescue? I'm an engine guy. I'm probably like a closet trucky, I guess. I like search. I like tearing stuff up. But there's something satisfying about the work of the engine and the fact that I've been in fires without ventilation. I've been in fires without a Rick crew. But you're not going to go to any fire without the engine company. Any fire of substance can be successful. And I also think you can do all those other things off the engine, but you can't always do it off the truck or the squad. All right, I'll hit you with one more. Acronyms, yay or nay? I do a funny thing on acronyms in my class, actually, on how we're polarized about them. They're a necessary evil. Some of them seem really silly. Like I said earlier, the VES, VEIS, we're splitting hairs at that point. But there are plenty of things that we don't do often where some silly acronym is going to be how you remember it. Acronyms are a necessary evil, but let's stop fighting about which ones we're going to use and just pick one that works for you and go from there. Nice. So lastly, how can people find you and follow you? The main one is on Facebook. It is The Fire Inside. I think the actual Facebook address is The Fire Inside page. Also have a website, thefireinsidepage.com. It's got kind of the class offerings, a little store, stickers. I just threw out some uh, T-shirts and hoodies that I'm trying. I literally rolled out last week, so that's cool. The merchandise thing kind of came about because people asked for it, and then I donate 20% of all the proceeds to Rosecrans Florian, organization. They deal with mental health, substance abuse, and fire, EMS, police, and military. One of the logos is the Kool-Aid man. In my venture doing that, I found the guy who kind of came up with it. We got in touch. He's actually off the job for PTSD, and we, we talked about the, the mission of what I'm doing and what it stands for. And his deal was, you know, go ahead and use it just as long as you, you give some money towards the PTSD stuff. So I, I honored that, and I appreciate his uh, blessing in using it. And uh, I'm also on Instagram, but I'm like a horrible hashtagger, so I don't even know if I do it right, but other people are on Instagram, so I just put it over there, too. It's usually the, the same thing as that's on Facebook. I try to do every day or two. You know, obviously, I can't do it at work all the time, and I try to you know do it in advance some days, but try to just put something up there semi-regularly that's going to motivate you. It's going to give you some perspective and keep you going. So those are the main places. You can find me on my personal page, but I just kind of trying to cut down on that, kind of keep it through the business pages if we can. Yeah, I'd highly recommend they read your writing, and I always admire how prolific you are. Well, I appreciate it. I told you when you asked, but I've listened to every episode, and I don't consider myself on the same level as any of the people you've talked to before, but I do appreciate it. I hope people find it informative. I hope people better understand what's going on with it and why I do it. And It's been good to me. It's helped me center myself, find myself, improve myself, and I will keep doing it as long as people want to read it and as long as people want to have me out to talk about it. Well, this was awesome. You did a great job. You definitely had so much to offer. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I appreciate your patience in dealing with all the tech issues we had leading up to this. So I'm glad we were finally able to make it happen. Thanks for having me, and thanks for doing your podcast, man. It's always informative, and it helps my commute.